I'd like to make mention of a couple things before we uh, go into this passage in Isaiah. First is, if you'd like a Bible to follow along in this Isaiah 7 passage, just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. Uh, we have some ushers who have some extras and can pass them out and let you use them this morning. Um, secondly, I uh, want to make mention of uh, one item this week that um, Melissa didn't include. Um, I hope you were paying attention to all of the announcements. You can find them in your bulletin. Uh, but I also want to make mention of this coming Saturday. If you're here in town, um, you are invited to join us for the memorial service for Melveline Swanson. Um, what a wonderful uh, member of this church she has been through the years, invested in this church in so many different ways. And um, a memorial to honor her life taking place this Saturday in the Ellipse Chapel at 1.30. And certainly would like to invite you to be part of that if you're in town. Um, Secondly, I would like to make mention, um, my guess is there are a number of you who don't know John Miller, but some of you do. John is a regular attender in the first service. He's a neighbor of our church, living only about three blocks away. After the passing of his wife, he uh, started attending here and was here in church as recently as a week ago Sunday. And uh, though he has been sick, he, you wouldn't know it by his engagement with the church but then experienced a very rapid decline over last weekend and passed away in his home Wednesday evening um, with uh, his family nearby. I don't know that there's going to be a memorial service, but I do hope that you will remember John Miller's family. Um, his nephew and niece have been living with him for a period of time. Um, his sisters and daughter, uh, just lift them up if God brings John to your mind. Um, what a is one of those individuals that embodied for me um, the Acts passage that talks about the power of kindness. That's what John was. He was just kind. And his uh, um, life exemplified for me that passage. So remember the Swanson family. Remember the Miller family. And... Um, I hope that uh, um, the support that comes through prayer sometimes gets translated into actions as well. And if God leads you in any particular way, I hope you will follow that leadership. I would also like to follow on something that Melissa said earlier, and that's about the wonderful ways in which this church gives. And sometimes we don't get to hear the follow-up story with some things that take place. Um, earlier this year many in our church contributed towards some of the needs that were taking place in the Oklahoma City Moore area when the terrible storms came through and leveled some portions of that area of our country. In more recent weeks, we have a number of people from our church who have been generous toward the things that have taken place in the Philippines. I just wanted to read you a story that is your story. It came to me. I have the good fortune of sometimes hearing these, and I need to pass them along. This one is an email that was sent to me two weeks ago um, from Gabriela Rodriguez Espinoza. She writes, we currently serve at Trinity Church of the Nazarene, which is on the south side of Oklahoma City. Sergio, her husband, serves as pastor of Hispanic Ministries, and I serve as executive pastor. First of all, I want to thank you and your church for thinking of us here in Oklahoma City. Your kindness, along with that of so many other Nazarenes, has been overwhelming. 
we hosted the Tornado Relief Center for many months at Trinity Church and mobilized teams of people and saw firsthand how a little generosity goes a long way. Our church is about 10 miles from Moore. My family and I moved to the Moore area about a year and a half ago. We've served at the church for eight years. We saw firsthand the mighty hand of God upon our lives and children and entire community. Our children go to the Briarwood Elementary School, which is one of the schools that was completely devastated by the tornado. I was actually trying to check my children out from school at the time the tornado hit and was caught in the middle of it with them. Quite an experience, to say the least. But the Lord was so good and compassionate towards us. Our house was hit badly, but not destroyed completely. Although just across our street, most houses were totaled. Both our cars were totaled. And yet we walked away with nothing more than a few wounds. Living in the area has given us a new perspective on not only the effects of such a tragic situation, but also a new understanding of how God uses God's church to be God's hands, feet, and heart in a time of tragedy for a community. Though lots of rebuilding has taken place, there is still so much more to be done. We appreciate your continued concern and prayers for more Oklahoma. Beautiful note that's yours, sent to me, and I get to be the messenger of the wonderful things that happen in this community. Thank you. Thank you for being the kind of people that recognize church goes far beyond these four walls. In fact, that is the church. We come together to worship, to learn, to grow, but the church exists as we leave this place and live out our faith. So thank you for being that kind of a place. Um, I'd like, if we could, just to pause for a word of prayer for our journey, for our neighbors, both right next door to us and around the globe. You probably have a number of needs on your heart that you come to this time and place with. Let's pray together. Our Father, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our companion and friend, our shepherd, provider, protector. We come this morning both with joys and hopes, anticipation in this season of Advent. We also bring with us dreams and hopes that have been broken. Aspirations that seem to have been dashed. We come celebrating family and relationships and friendships. And yet we also walk into this place with broken relationships and hurt feelings. We get excited about this time of season and then it seems like we are taken by surprise by other emotions that seem to dampen our spirit and drag us down. Both a happy season and a difficult season. 
And we bring it all this morning. We bring it to you. We pray for courage. Wisdom. We ask for forgiveness. And thank you for grace. We know all that this season represents. And we also know all of the circumstances that seem to defy the power of this season. And yet none of that surprises you, Lord. This morning we simply want to proclaim that we are in your hands. Help us to be dependent on you and trust you. Help us in our faithfulness, our courage. Help us to be an encouragement to others. To live in such a way that your kingdom might be seen. We thank you, Lord, and we praise your name. Amen. This passage, Isaiah chapter 7. Fascinating passage. I'd love for you to keep your kind of Bible open there, your finger in that place. Isaiah the prophet. One of the things that I find difficult about looking at the prophets, and I've said this before, is that it's sometimes difficult to know what the context is into which that prophet spoke. And so then I read it, and it sounds beautiful, but I don't get what it means. It's incredibly poetic, but I have no idea what it's about. Beautiful words, but I can't figure out how it applies. And so I try and take little phrases and make them make sense for myself, because I can't quite make the connection between these beautiful, poetic, prophetic words, sometimes harsh, sometimes encouraging, sometimes uplifting, sometimes grandiose. But if I knew a little bit more about the context, I might be able to not only understand it better for when it was said and why it was said, it then might make more sense to me now to try and apply some of those things to my life. Well, this is one of those wonderful prophetic passages where there are other portions of Scripture that help us to set a stage for what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 7. So, earlier in our Scriptures, but not earlier chronologically, in 2 Kings, chapters 15 and 16, we have the story that provides the setup For this particular passage, we have, as I've mentioned before, the Hebrew people having divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom often referred to as Israel, the southern kingdom often referred to as Judah. In 1st and 2nd Kings, we're told about the sequence of kings, how they lived, what they did, all of their activities. Well, we don't hear about all of them because very often at the end of a paragraph, it will say, And all of the activities of this king are recorded in such and such a book, which we don't have, but that's where they kept all of the details of the king's records. We just have little snippets in 1st and 2nd Kings. So in 2nd Kings chapter 15, 
we learn a little bit about what's happening in the northern kingdom. There is a king by the name of Pekahiah. I may not be pronouncing that very well, but he had a chief officer that he shouldn't have had as a chief officer because this chief officer was planning a coup. And this chief officer went and got about 50 strong men, I think from the area of Gideon. And he came and he overthrew that king. This gentleman's name was Pekah. And he became the king of the area and reigned for several years. Wasn't a good king. And he fell right in line with a lot of other kings that weren't very good. And one of the things that he did was that he made an alliance with others. He made an alliance with the king of Aram. Part of the goal was to invade the southern kingdom and take back over that land. But there was a great standoff, and they weren't able to conquer the southern kingdom. We get into chapter 16, and we hear about what's happening in the southern kingdom. There is a king who has taken over power by the name of King Ahaz. Ahaz, also not a very good king. Ahaz had a number of problems. It seems to me, as I read about Ahaz that he never could quite answer some really important questions about life. First, he couldn't figure out who God was. He seemed preoccupied with learning about everybody else's God. He was aware of his own history, but he'd do this interesting process where he kind of mix his own religious heritage with the religious practices of those who lived nearby which resulted in some horrific religious practices. So the way in which they did sacrifices, but also that which they sacrificed, Scripture indicates that it included human sacrifices of little children. Terrible things. And yet he was trying to have a smattering of part of his religious history as well. It was as if he was trying to appease rulers of nearby territories so that he could make an alliance with them. And one of the alliances he was about to make was with the king of Assyria. Making an alliance with a king to the east so that Assyria might protect him from the kingdom in the north and the kingdom of Aram. This alliance was an unholy alliance. And it was into that setting that we have Isaiah speaking to the king in Isaiah 7. Where Isaiah goes to the king, King Ahaz, and begins to offer God's word for that moment. So when we come to verses 10 through 16 or 17 and beyond, we have Isaiah in conversation with the king of the southern portion of the kingdom who's trying to figure out what to do with the problems that he's facing. Feels backed into a corner. I get that part. He feels like he's being pressed in on every side. I get that. But his decision is 
to forego God, Yahweh, and make alliances with others, people he can see and touch and interact with and engage with, those who have shown power and might and strength. And there are a lot of other countries with other gods that have been conquered and they've cried out and appealed to their god and it was unsuccessful. And Ahaz is extrapolating from that that he might face the same problem. So Isaiah speaks and says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz's response to that is, oh, I don't want to test God which really comes right out of some of the Old Testament passages in the law where it says, be careful that you don't test God. But it doesn't appear as if Ahaz is saying that for spiritual reasons. It appears as if he's saying it to avoid accountability with God. Because Isaiah says, are you going to test God in this? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the sign. The sign is this. A baby's going to be born. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look for a sign from God, I'm looking for something that is just off the chart, only God kind of a thing that takes place. Now, I'll have to admit, the birth of a child is incredible, unbelievable. God in God's creativity, created this process, and it is amazing. But in our country alone, I think there are 10,000 births today. In our world today, I think there are something like 375,000 births today. It's just not all that uncommon. Amazing, yes, but not all of that seems so uncommon. So here's the great sign. A woman's going to give birth to a child. That's the sign I've been looking for, says King Ahaz. No. I don't, I don't know what you'd like instead of that. Some of us ask for, based on scripture, you know, something handwriting on the wall that just starts appearing. But if you look at that passage, what was written on the wall wasn't a very good thing. So I don't think you ought to be asking for that. So be careful what you ask for. Asking for some amazing thing that just stuns everyone. Yet throughout scripture, we find God doing extraordinary things through ordinary means. That's important to me. I know I've made reference to it before, but the passage that first hit that into my heart so strongly was when Paul was on the ship that was being tossed by the storm for so long and the ship got jammed into a sandbar and they still hadn't made it to land and land was still off further than was comfortable and the waves are starting to crash. And Paul had a vision that everybody was going to make it to the shore safely. And here's the amazing way by which God brought about this promise. Those who could swim jumped in the water and swam to shore. Wow, that's a great plan. Then for all of the people who couldn't swim, 
They were supposed to wait on the boat until it fell apart. And then when they saw a piece of wood large enough to grab hold of, jump in the water, grab a hold of that piece of wood, and just doggy paddle as hard as you can to shore. That's not all that extraordinary. But the promise came to pass. Everyone on that ship made it to shore safely. Spirit went to Ananias, a man in whom God could trust. Nothing particularly extraordinary about Ananias, just a faithful, obedient servant of God. No great story behind Ananias' background or history. We don't know much that follows at all. All we know is that God said, go to Saul. Yeah, Saul, the one who's killing Christians, that one. He's at a particular place. I want you to lay your hands on him and pray for him because I've called him to do some things. Through a very ordinary man in very simple, obedient ways, God used Ananias. God uses very ordinary things to do extraordinary works. I sometimes find myself stuck in place because I'm waiting for something that's already arrived. God's saying, don't put your trust in the things. Put your trust in me, says the Lord. I'll take care of those things. Your trust is not in the means. Your trust is not in the peace or the thing or the vision. Your trust is in God. So Isaiah says, a child's going to be born. But through that very somewhat ordinary thing, extraordinary things will take place. For Ahaz, the statement is that before long, before this child reaches a certain age, all of the things that you fear will just kind of go away if you'll stay trusting. Both of those kingdoms that you're worried about, you don't need to worry about them. I'm taking care of them. Ahaz doesn't listen, but that's the promise from Isaiah. And in fact, that came to pass. Who is the child about which Isaiah was speaking? We're not exactly sure. It's possible that Ahaz's wife was the one who was to be with child. It's possible that Isaiah had another child. Many look toward the child of Ahaz, Hezekiah. It was the child that was going to bring about such change because Hezekiah returned to God lived obediently, tried to set in motion a return to the principles that God had established. What we have, though, in Scripture is an interesting appropriation of this passage by the Gospel writer Matthew. So we go to Matthew 1, and we find in verses 20, 21, 22, 23, Matthew using this verse as a way to speak about Jesus. 
Because Isaiah's statement is, and the child's name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with, pardon me, with us, L, God. The with us, God. Such a contrast to the gods of the cultures around them. Such a contrast to the idols and images that others had created. This is the with us God. The God who abides with us. What a statement. And the gospel writer appropriately uses this to speak about the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come. It is God with us in Christ. When I was um, much younger, I only had one child. She was a toddler. And we had, I can't remember why, but we had the opportunity to go to Disney World. We're in Florida, and we went to Epcot Center. If you've ever been to Disney World in Epcot, let me rephrase that. If you haven't, the brief description is this. A huge place with a big pond in the middle, and all around are all these buildings that represent different nationalities and countries. And you can go to all of these buildings and walk in. You can sample their food. You can see unique films about their um, place. You can learn about their culture. And then you step out of that country and take 10 steps the other direction and step into a building that represents another country. And you just do this over and over again. And it's an exhausting day. And a little child can't quite last an entire day. And so about halfway through the day, she wants to be held. A stroller doesn't quite work all of the time. So holding the child, this arm gives out, then this arm gives out, then the shoulders, and then please, will you take her? And it just goes back and forth through the rest of the evening. The conclusion of this day was wonderful in that this large, large pond has all kinds of fountains that shoot up and they do a wonderful fountain show at the evening with lights and music and all kinds of things. So we're standing there right up against the railing and I'm holding Sutton in my arms and the fountains start going and the music goes in with some classical pieces and my daughter blurts out, Beethoven. She's, I mean, she's a toddler. She hardly talks at all, but blurts out Beethoven. And this lady who was standing against the railing right next to us looks over and she's in awe and she says, wow, what an amazing girl. So sophisticated at such a young age. I was so proud as a dad in that moment. I was just wanting her to click off every song that happened after that. The problem was I knew that wasn't going to happen because that year out on cassette had come the wonderful movie Beethoven, which tells the story of a large St. Bernard dog in the family. And she heard the theme song from that movie. She wasn't really naming the tune. She was looking for the dog was what she was doing. Beethoven. It's my girl. I didn't, I didn't clarify that for the lady beside me. I guess I'm confessing now. Sin of omission or something that I need to correct. There's a great scene in that film, if you've ever seen it, this large St. Bernard dog adopted by this family. And one of the young children in the family, um, scrawny little kid, 
and uh, embarrassingly looks a lot like me when I was a kid. Um, he is being bullied at school. And in one scene, he gets off of the bus and he knows that the big kids are coming after him and he starts running. And the kids are a lot faster than he is. And he comes to a stop as they circle around in front of him right beside this huge set of bushes. And they're standing there ready to taunt him and about ready to beat him up. And he's trying to muster all the courage he has to stand there and not just crumble into the fetal position and take whatever they're going to give him. And unbeknownst to him, Beethoven, the St. Bernard dog, is behind the bushes. And he comes out from behind the bushes and he is standing right behind him with the lips of his mouth up and the fangs just showing in a vicious, vicious look from this large St. Bernard dog. And all of the bully dogs, uh, the bully kids, <laughs> can see the dog, but the little boy doesn't know it. And they start backing off. And as soon as they back off, he stands a little bit taller and puts his chest out a little bit further. And they back off a little bit further until finally they said, no, 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 don't, 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 don't. And they take off running. And as soon as they take off running, Beethoven goes back behind the bushes. The little boy never knew what took place. The great director cuts to the very next scene where we find him standing in his bedroom in front of a full-length mirror with his shirt off, flexing and standing as he could to try and exhibit absolutely no muscle at all, but thinking he saw something there that would cause the bullies to run. Beethoven was with him. He might have missed it, but Beethoven made all the difference. That's what changed everything. Only a few years older than that, my dad, who worked for, was a salesman, worked for a company that did sporting goods and a company that did marine products, and he would periodically go to these large conventions and set up a booth. Um, we never came to San Diego, but much like the San Diego Convention Center, so Chicago, McCormick Place, and a few other locations, my dad every once in a while would let me come along. And we'd go to this large convention hall. Dad would, after I helped him with a little bit setting up the booth, he'd just let me wander. I mean, it was a little boy's dream come true. Huge convention halls where I would get to go and, and look at and test athletic equipment. I'd walk through large sailboats and, and yachts and various places where we'd be at. I'd go to where they had a big fishing thing set up. I just wander around, and it was a little odd for a kid as young as I was to be walking around by himself, and every once in a while I'd get stopped. And it was so wonderful to just look up at the person and say, I'm with that guy over there at that booth. Selden Kelly's my dad. Or sometimes I'd show him my little badge, and it'd have my dad's name on it, the company, and that I was official and I belonged there. It was wonderful, because I was with him. And he was with me. It changed everything. Now, I need to be honest. There were times when I probably didn't represent my dad very well. 
And as I grew, I learned. There are times when I don't represent God's church very well. Happened this week. And I had to form the words of an apology about not representing very well God's kingdom. I'm grateful for God's patience. But God calls us, because we're part of that family, and we represent God with us, Emmanuel. And it changes everything. And so Matthew speaks about how this is the fulfillment, peels back another layer of Isaiah's prophetic word to Ahaz, but then to the first century Christians, and now to us. Emmanuel, the with us God. I do struggle a little bit. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that his name shall be called Emmanuel. That's verse 23 of chapter 1 of Matthew. But we're told right there in verse 20 and 21 that his name will be called Jesus for he will save the people from their sins. It's always bothered me that they didn't, you know, that when he grew up, they weren't calling him Manny or something like that. <laughs> something to help me make the connection from what was said there in Scripture and Jesus' life. Until Matthew helps me here. I don't know if Matthew was intending to tie up any loose end or... I, I know Matthew didn't have me in mind. But at the very end of Matthew's gospel, the very last chapter, the very last verse, Jesus has commissioned the disciples... And in verse 20, Jesus says, And I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. <laughs> Jesus' fulfillment of Emmanuel, the with us God, incarnate, in Christ, says, I will be with you, Emmanuel. It changes everything. It moves us through, like Ahaz, a place where peace has been difficult to find, where circumstances have been overwhelming, where it hasn't resolved exactly like I thought it would resolve. And so I am looking for ways to take matters into my own hands, step away from trusting God, and try and get this done on my own. I believe God calls us to use our resources. God calls us to use our strengths and talents. God calls us to use whatever He has provided for us to use. But God calls us to always keep our eyes fixed on God. Christ, the author and finisher of all things, that our trust and our faith remains there. 
It is a response that Ahaz didn't expect. Because in Ahaz's world, the biggest bully wins. And God's saying, I have come to show a different way. That love conquers all. The strength of love, the power of love. It is action. It is also silence and waiting. It is the avenue through which God shows God's presence. So when peace has been elusive, listen to Isaiah. There's a child to be born. May that child be born in me, in you. God with us and in us. Father in heaven, hallowed be your holy name. May your kingdom come in us. May your will be done in us, just as it is in heaven. I don't know what we are facing like Ahaz has faced. What is our impossible situation this morning? For some of us, it has beaten us down. It has worn us out. It has exhausted our resources. And it makes the season a little more difficult than we anticipated. This morning, Lord, help us to turn our eyes on you. May we be encouraged by Isaiah's prophetic word. May we be encouraged at God, your faithfulness. May the message that's been heard 2,700 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 100 years ago, come alive and be real and pertinent for us today. Emmanuel. Your wonderful presence in Jeremy's life as he testified just earlier this morning. That your presence fills the gap. Your presence makes the difference. Your presence leads us to love. If this morning you need to open up your heart... And let Emmanuel be born in you. What a great morning. What an incredible week for that to happen. For some it may mean a corner of your life that you have pushed God away. A circumstance you have ceased trusting to God. What a great morning. What a great week. What a great season to open up this morning and say, okay, God, dwell within. May you be the with us, God, in my life. Maybe this is a week of great celebration. And this morning is simply to remember that so many times standing right behind us, 
like coming out from behind the bushes, you have been there to protect and to guard. And we have taken credit for what we thought we had done. Or conversely, Lord, we have blamed you for things that really had nothing to do with you. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for your patience when we've not represented you well. Will you heal those moments? Redeem those messes. For those of us who have been hurt by the church, someone in the church, help us to forgive as we've been forgiven. May this week, Lord, be just that proclamation. Emmanuel, praise your name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. I invite you to continue to listen to the Spirit. I invite the ushers to come as we continue to worship. Thank you.